scripture is from Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 to 17. I will read in another language, Runyankole, which is from southwestern Uganda. That's the hard part. Kandi akizwa abejve va Yohana ya mubuzabati. Ahawenchi tuwe nabafarusayo kinji ni tuwe sivyakwe. Hazabejva webo bate sivyaku. Yesu ya wagarukwa mwati. Awakweni wawasavata kuganyawa chine chwera. Obunakuburiyahika. Obuchwera arbiwaho. Obunwovari ya sivyaku. Tarho muntu otela echiremu chomuenda musia ahamuenda mkuru. Awoku vecho echabazi waho chikata gure chujwaro. Nechifumuka chihanguka. Kandi tebashuka vinyo yomtahe omufrewe zempu ezikuzire. Kuba kukora watyo efrewe zikabaruka vinyo eyatika zisiskara. Kureka vinyo yomtahe eshukua omufrewe nsia yona bewana kurama. Now to the easy part. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. The word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Joshua. Lord, we are grateful that we have a copy of your word in our language. We are grateful for those who are translating scripture around the world. And Lord, we would ask that your word would accomplish all that you intend for it to accomplish. Uh, our trust is completely in you. We have already confessed you are sovereign Lord of this universe. We say it once again, Lord, that the strength that you show, may it grant courage and confidence to your people. And Lord Jesus, come and let your will be done on this earth. Let your will be done in our lives this morning. Let us be happy to surrender our souls to you. Let us be content, Lord, to listen to your words and be obedient. And I pray, Father, that you would give us ears to hear what you would want to say to us this morning through this portion of Scripture. Please prevent the enemy from distracting us. Please prevent him from taking what seed has been planted through your word. And Lord, we would ask that by your grace and the presence of your spirit, that you would let your word take root in our hearts and bear fruit. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. And help us to glorify the name of Jesus as we have already sung. And now as we consider your word together. And Lord, we would pray that our hearts would be made new. Do not let us be content with old ways of living. But Lord Jesus, let us understand what newness you bring. And I pray that you would do a new thing in our hearts, each one of us, 
individually for the sake and the glory of your great name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. So we've been walking through Matthew and we're continuing our journey. And Matthew's theme has been the authority of Jesus, which has been manifested in various ways. We have, we've seen it in his teaching. We've seen it in his authority over disease. We have seen it in his uh, authority over distance to be able to heal from far away. We've seen it in his authority over disciples. We've seen it in his authority over demons. We've seen it in his authority uh, to forgive sins. Uh, Jesus alone commands uh, the forgiveness of sins, which is absolutely incredible. We have also seen that Jesus then uh, calls to himself disciples who follow him. Matthew, last week we saw uh, this, this call and his response where uh, he began following Jesus and part of what happened in his life from having his sins forgiven was that he invited everybody over to his house for dinner and everybody that he invited were sinners and those who were unpopular in the world and those who religious people who were devout and serious stayed far away from. But Matthew had been brought near to Jesus and he wanted to bring everybody with him as close as he could get. And Jesus was willing to have them come. He sat with them at table, which caused a little consternation for the Pharisees. And so today, uh, we're going to see there's also some consternation in the disciples of John who were also watching. So the Pharisees come to Jesus, I mean, come to his disciples, concerned about what they see Jesus doing. Today, we have seen the disciples of John come to Jesus, concerned about what the disciples of Jesus are doing. So it's a little bit of a change, but there's a question nonetheless. And I, the question is regarding fasting today. The, the, the topic, the presenting issue is fasting. And what strikes me is people are always asking Jesus questions. They're always coming to him with questions. And maybe that's you. We, we, we come with questions. We have questions as we look at this world. We're, we're constantly asking questions. And that's okay. Jesus invites the asking of questions. And so we see today, as uh, these disciples of John come to Jesus and ask him, why are your disciples not fasting? Let's look at it one more time in verse uh, 14. And I should say, John has been arrested already. Uh, part of the context of this passage is that John has been captured and thrown into jail so his disciples are still following him. They're still together as a movement, but he himself has already been arrested and thrown in jail. We saw that back a, a couple of chapters. But now John's disciples, verse 14, they come with a, with a question. And here's the question. Um, the disciples of John came to Jesus saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So we fast... We're disciples of John. We fast. The Pharisees are fasting. Uh, religious devotion among both of us. And yet your disciples don't fast. So Jesus, what is up with your disciples? That's the question. And so uh, the first question we have to ask is, what is fasting? What is it? Um, and we, we uh, would discover a simple definition. Fasting is one who has not eaten or one who is empty. And the the notion of being empty of food takes a religious connotation because there are religious reasons for foregoing food. And so the simplest definition of what is fasting in this context is to go without food for a set time for a religious purpose. 
So that's what they're asking. We're religious people, but you're not practicing an aspect of religion that everybody else is practicing, and we're confused, Jesus. And I think if we were to summarize what we're seeing, Jesus' authority today over religious rituals, because Jesus says some astounding things, and we will uh, we'll listen to them in just a moment, but he That's what's confusing. You're not doing, your disciples are not doing what we would expect them to do. So Jesus, help us understand. And so Jesus does so. Now, I I would say fasting, when we see this in the Old Testament, there's only one time a year, one day a year, where fasting is required under the old old law, the old covenant. It's Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Um, That's the only time that a fast was called for for the nation of Israel. So one day out of the year, um, God said, fast. The Pharisees had then taken that, and in their religious devotion and rigor, had begun fasting every Monday and Thursday, every week. So twice a week. So we go from the Old Testament command of once a year to a Pharisaical practice, which is twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. So fasting uh, is not unique to the Jews. Many people fast. Uh, we, we see this in the Old Testament. We, we see this today, right? People are still fasting for different reasons, right? Half of you in this room are undergoing intermittent fasting for the sake of weight loss. Um, that's very popular today. Um, there are political reasons for fasting. Think Gandhi so long ago who would use fasting as a mechanism for getting the attention of the world for political reasons. Uh, Muslims fast during Ramadan, right? The entire month of Ramadan, And then Hindu uh, Brahmins also fast with intense rigor. Uh, So fasting is a part of lots of different religions for various reasons. And even people who have no religion will sometimes practice fasting. And that's what gets the disciples' attention. Why, Jesus, are your disciples not fasting on a regular basis? And Jesus offers an answer. He essentially says, it's not time to fast. It's the simple, short answer, but he uses three illustrations which capture the attention of of Jewish listeners in a way that probably we have to struggle with to hear. But I want to try to help us see what what was going on. So verse 15, Jesus offers the answer, saying it's not the right time to fast, which is unusual. Now, this is the expression of Jesus' authority. So look at verse 15 with me. Jesus said... Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus notices a couple things to see here. He equates mourning with fasting. Can the wedding guests mourn? That's that's what he's paralleling with fasting. Can, Can the wedding guests fast when the bridegroom is with them? And the expected answer is no. But the the point here is, notice how the essential meaning of fasting that Jesus highlights is mourning. It's it's to be related to mourning. And we actually see this. When you look throughout the Old Testament, or where we see fasting, it's often associated with grievous times of intense physical danger. Sometimes even life itself is on the line or in the face of death or some terrible situation has happened, that's when people fast. For example, David fasted when his little son 
uh, was sick. You remember there was a week uh, that his life was sort of hanging in the balance and David fasted. He didn't eat. King Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20 fasted when two massive armies arrived at the borders of Israel with the intent of destroying them. He, he fasted and, and so did the leaders of Israel. Ezra fasted in preparation for the long journey back to Jerusalem when he feared for his life and understood that this small little band of exiles who were returning would be vulnerable to attack. He fasted and prayed for God's protection. You remember the king of Nineveh when Jonah came and preached, if you don't repent in 30 days, the entire city is going to be destroyed. And the king of Nineveh said... We better fast. Let's put on sackcloth. Let's fast. Let's turn our attention to the Lord. Queen Esther, in the face of the annihilation of of Haman, that spirit still resident in this world of annihilating the Jews, we see Esther calls for a fast because life was on the line. And so she said, fast for three days and I'll go to the king and we'll see what happens. Joel also calls for a fast when the land is being destroyed by locusts and invading armies. Zechariah mentions three fasts, uh, four, sorry. One uh, began when the, uh, the city of Jerusalem came under siege. He called for a fast. Another, when the wall was breached. There was a third fast that came when the enemies were invading. And then a fourth, when the governor was assassinated. So we see uh, the deep historical roots of fasting comes in times of intense mourning when life is on the line. So we understand why Jesus would say, can, can the wedding guests mourn when they're with the bridegroom? And who's the wedding guest here? The wedding guests represent the disciples. And so now we get to the, the real question. Who's the bridegroom in this story? And as, as Jesus is sharing this little uh, analogy, he, who's the bridegroom? And it's himself. And, and what's astounding to me is there's an entire background to the, the term bridegroom. This is not a random illustration that Jesus just plucked out of the air all of a sudden. He is making a calculated declaration. In saying bridegroom, he is hinting obliquely at who he is. Because he is saying an entire practice of religious tradition of fasting is now inappropriate because the bridegroom is here. And he is the bridegroom. Now, if you know your Old Testament, do you know who the bridegroom of Israel is? It's God himself. God himself is the bridegroom of Israel. Isaiah 54, 5 and 6 says this. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of all the earth, of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, like a wife of youth. So God himself is the husband of Israel. And question, when did they get married? What was the time period when God married the nation of Israel? And if you remember, it is after they were delivered out of Egypt and God led them to Mount Sinai and spoke the covenant, which was a kind of wedding vow. That was when God brought the nation to himself. And he says things like, you are my treasured possession among all of the peoples of the earth. 
You alone are my treasured possession. And they said yes to him. When he said, if you will have me as your God, I will have you as my people. Three times they say yes to him. And and here's a, a bit of a summary. When we look at 19, Exodus 19 is where the Ten Commandments are given. That's actually the beginning of the, the, the covenant relationship. What, what we call marriage, what? A covenant of marriage. It is a binding uh, together of two peoples in the same way this is what uh, brought them together. And I'll, I'll summarize Exodus 19, 20, uh, 20 the beginning of the of first two, uh, three verses of chapter 20. Here's what God essentially says to them. You see how I have rescued from Egypt out of, out of the house of slavery, how I have carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And therefore, he said, you shall have, what's the first commandment? No other gods before me. He is essentially saying, I will be your husband and you will be my bride and you will not have any other husbands but me. That's the first commandment. And when Moses, if you remember in Deuteronomy, when he repeats that, he says almost the same thing. So God is the bridegroom of Israel. And remember, what is Jesus standing here saying? I'm the bridegroom. The reason the disciples were not fasting is because the bridegroom is with them. And he's putting himself in the place of God. This is absolutely astounding. And also, Isaiah 62, 4 and 5. This is what God says about the nation of Israel. You shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land shall be called married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, and as a bridegroom rejoices over her bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So God is presented in the Old Testament as the bridegroom who rejoices over his bride. And Marriage is a time of rejoicing, is it not? At least the beginning part. Marriage is it's, it's a time for joy. The beginning of a relationship. Oh, how often we need to pray for our marriages. I'm, I'm just struck by the attack of the enemy who wants to destroy marriages. If you, if you want to ruin a nation, you start at marriages. You want to destroy a nation, start at the foundation of the most basic family unit and you attack there. That's the the strategy of the enemy. Pray for marriages. We have a great marriage class going, marriage strengthening class going on at 9 a.m. If you're one of those people who are in need of strengthening, jump in at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. But here's God, the bridegroom of Israel, rejoicing over his people and Jesus saying, the bridegroom. You get what he's doing. This is incredible. And throughout the Old Testament, we see many examples where this notion of spiritual marriage serves as a backdrop of understanding the nation of Israel's relationship with God. Constantly we see it. For example, when the unfaithfulness of Israel is often likened to the unfaithfulness of a wife. And God's love for Israel is likened to a love of a bride for a bridegroom. The other way around, bridegroom for a bride. So Jeremiah 2.2 says this, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness. This was the beginning of the, the marital relationship between God and his people. And the pledge of fidelity is there at the giving of the Ten Commandments and the giving of the covenant. And yet also when they rebelled, 
Jeremiah 3.20, Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel. Their entire sinfulness and rebellion against God was viewed as spiritual idolatry. And, and there's tons of examples throughout the Old Testament. Think of the entire book of Hosea, which is intended to be a, a love relationship between husband and wife. And so Jesus is saying, I'm standing in the place of God in front of you. That's what he's saying. By saying, I'm the bridegroom, he is saying, I am with you as the very God of this nation. That's the analogy he's making. And John the Baptist picked up on this. He saw, the, in, a, in a very early part of Jesus' ministry, he got a hold of this. I want to read you something amazing. This is from John 3, verses 27, 28 to 30. When, when John's disciples, we go back to John's disciples, when they saw many people going out and being baptized by Jesus and his disciples, they saw him as competition. And so they came to John and said, have you not seen how many people are going out to be baptized by Jesus and his guys? Do you see them all? And, and John's response is essentially this. This is uh, John chapter 3 at the end of the chapter. I told you I'm not the Messiah. I said this already. I'm come to prepare the way for the Messiah. The people are the bride. They belong to the bridegroom. I'm just a friend. I'm like the best man at the wedding, standing by, rejoicing as the bridegroom makes his vows. I'm listening. And he said, he must increase. And you know it, right? What? I must decrease. I'm not the bridegroom. Jesus is. He said, I rejoice. This joy of mine is full that everybody's going out to see Jesus because he comes as the very uh, incarnation of God himself. So Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm the redeemer sent by God. I'm come to you in person. That's what he's saying in claiming to be the bridegroom. But notice, he understands he won't be around forever. Look at the last part of verse 15. He knows there will be a time when he is taken away. The last half of verse 15 says this, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And what? Then they will fast. Right now the bridegroom is here. There will come a time when the bridegroom is taken away, and then my disciples will fast. So Jesus understands he will be removed. He will be taken away. There will be a season of time somewhere in the future when he will be taken away from his disciples. And notice Jesus assumes that the fasting that the disciples of John are looking for will happen then. He, he understands them to be those who will fast. So question, should Christians fast today? There are some who would say, no, we should not, we should not fast. Um, we have... The coming of Jesus has been real. His spirit has been given to us. And so because of the spiritual union, we should not fast. Fasting is a part of the old uh, order. And fasting is not appropriate for us today. And I wonder, that's a, that's a debated question. I, I can give you and would like to give you six reasons for why that's not right. And I would like to consider, uh, lay before you uh, the question of, are you willing to practice fasting if this is what Jesus expects of his disciples? So the first question. Um, we see in the early church, 
that the apostles fasted after Jesus' resurrection. So those who would argue that fasting is not a part of the current order, the church age, the fasting was only particular. Jesus was only talking about the time during his, when he was in the tomb. That's what he was talking about. That was the fasting. After Jesus died and he was taken away from his disciples, he, that's when the disciples were fasting. But when he was given back to them at the resurrection, there's no more need for any fasting because he's been returned to them. But the apostles fasted in the early church. As you go through Acts, you'll see many places. For example, Paul and Barnabas went around teaching in every church, this is Acts 14, 23, at the appointment of elders for every church, they would fast. So at the appointing of elders, there would be a, a fasting for looking for the will of the Lord for who is to be appointed as elders. And so fasting was embraced by them. Uh, Paul also says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, he says that he has often been without food and drink and then with many fastings, the word used there, sometimes it's just translated as going without food. But it's, he almost says it twice, but the word is actually the word that's used for fasting elsewhere in the New Testament. So Paul evidently practiced fasting on a regular basis. Number two, the early church embraced regular practice of fasting. For example, there's a small document called the Didache, written about the latter half of the first century, which gives instructions on how the church should order itself. And it says this, Let not your fasts be like the hypocrites, for they fast on Mondays and Thursdays. Remember who does that? The Pharisees. They fast on Mondays and Thursdays. But the Didache, here, this instruction for local churches, don't fast on Mondays and Thursdays, but do fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. So there we go. Early church, the practice was fasting twice a week. So they didn't understand Jesus to have been teaching that fasting was not to be a practice at all. And I didn't grow up in a tradition that talked about fasting or, or spoke about fasting, but yet the early church did. Um, for other reasons, the early church also embraced seasons of fasting because if you remember, Paul and Barnabas were called to the... the vocational mission trip that they went on for a couple years out of a worship service that involved fasting. They were praying and fasting and worshiping the Lord. And it was through that service in Acts chapter 13 where the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work, the mission work to which I have called them. That came at a worship service that included fasting. And fourth, Paul fasted when his life was in danger. Do you remember when he was on a ship ready to be sent to Rome to try his case before Caesar, they went through a massive two-week storm at sea and everybody on the ship fasted. They all fasted. And it was Paul who, after a visitation of the Lord, then prayed and broke the fast the next morning with a prayer of thanksgiving. Fifth, James calls for fasting. James calls the early church to fasting. I'll read this, James 4, 8 to 10. For the sake of the removal of sin. I'll say that. James calls for fasting in order to spur repentance and freedom from sin. James 4, 8 to 10 says, Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Many of us, we know this verse. 
Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. All of those things are Old Testament language of ways of speaking about being broken for your own sin. Weep for your own sin. Cleanse your hearts. Purify yourselves. Let that be a part of of humbling yourself. Fasting is often attached to humbling. And Isaiah 58, 6 says this, Is this not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness? Right? When you have a, a sense that your spiritual life is out of balance... Isaiah, when when you're enslaved to some sin or sin has too much of a hold in your life, Isaiah is saying, fasting, this is God speaking, fasting loosens the bonds of sin of your life. It loosens the dominion. It gets your attention. And so here we have James, I believe, encouraging the practice of fasting. So he didn't seem like Jesus is saying, no fasting at all for my disciples. And then lastly, Jesus himself is presently enduring a kind of fast. You know this. This this struck me. We We just celebrated communion a couple weeks ago. We say this when we share communion together. But do you know what Jesus said on the last night he was with his disciples? He said... I'm I'm drinking the wine which represents my blood in the new covenant and the bread which, which is my body. But he said, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until I drink it again with you new in the kingdom of my Father. Jesus is fasting, as it were, wine until everybody gets home. He's waiting for his people. He's longing to be with us. And he says, I will abstain from this until we are all together. That's essentially what fasting is. It is abstaining from food or anything else that would keep us from Jesus until we can be close to him. And so Jesus is saying, there will be a time when I am taken away and then my disciples will fast. And then in verse 16 and 17, he says also, but I want to change the meaning of it. Here's also the authority of Jesus. The meaning of fasting is going to get changed. Look at verses 16 and 17. While Jesus is present, not the time to fast, but when he is gone, fasting will resume, but with a new meaning. And here he says, no one puts, verse 16, a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment and the worst, is, the worst tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins will burst when all of the gases of the fermenting wine exceed and expand. The skins will burst, the wine will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. So two more illustrations about why his disciples are not fasting. He is saying, I have brought something new. Something new is coming And so the old way of fasting won't work anymore. It won't do. The the old kind of fasting has been supplemented now with a new meaning because of the coming of Jesus. And so that old way of fasting is not good enough. And sometimes there needs to be a sabbatical of change, a period of, of stillness in order for new things to begin. I think that's what Jesus is saying here with the practice of fasting. He is saying something new is going to happen and will change the dimension of fasting. So one thing to remember, 
Jesus has essentially said, fasting is what happens when disciples are separated from their master, their Lord, and their bridegroom. When we are separated from Jesus, then fasting is to begin. But something new happens. So question, what is new? What, what is a new way of thinking about fasting that's different from the Old Testament? How does the coming of Jesus change anything? And the coming of Jesus changes everything. A, a wonderful question was asked this morning in our, our 9 o'clock Bible study, which says, how is it that sinful people can receive the Holy Spirit? Right? That's, that's what Christians are. Christians are those who have received the Spirit of Christ. How is it that sinners, wretched though we are, and every one of us are there, we're all sinners, we have all fallen short of the glory of God, how can the Holy Spirit be poured into wicked vessels? Brilliant question. And what's the answer? It is the change that has wrought has been the atonement for those sins on the cross. Something objective and real happened when Jesus died and was buried and then was resurrected on the third day. He paid for sins. The payment is made. So how do we, how do we receive the Holy Spirit? By faith, it, the Spirit of God begins to dwell within us as Christians as we cry out to Him. And then knowing now, atonement has happened. In the Old Testament, everything pointed forward to the coming of the Messiah who would one day take away sins. It's now happened. That's different. The payment has been made. Consider the debt that Jesus covered in paying for all of, of your sins. If you're a Christian this morning, all of your sins are completely forgiven in Christ Jesus. We sang about it. They have been paid for. The fasting now, as we are separated from Jesus, is not, oh, I wish my sins could be atoned for. It is, they are atoned for. Oh, I, I wish I could have communion with Christ. You can have communion with Christ. It's not a longing of, Jesus, Father God, are you going to send the Messiah? Today, we stand at a place where we can say, He has come. And that reality has broken in. But is it to the degree that you would wish? Anybody in the room? Are your sins completely eradicated from your life? Right? We live in a tension of the already, but the not yet. The kingdom, Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the kingdom of, of, of God the Father. I've come to fulfill everything that was written in the Old Testament. And that reality is what shapes our ability to begin experiencing the transformation through the Holy Spirit. So the fasting that we as Christians enter into is a hopeful a fasting. It's a, it's a fasting filled with faith. That actual payment of sins now brings us into a place we could never get to before. And so the reality of Jesus changes everything. So if old covenant fasting look forward to the Messiah, new covenant fasting is, he's come. 
It is faithful. And Old Testament uh, fasting, longing for the Messiah, New Covenant fasting, Jesus has come. Old Testament longing for the enemy to be defeated, New Covenant fasting, He is defeated. And, and that will begin to be worked out through our lives. If the fasting in the Old Testament is that sins would be atoned for one day, then we can look and say, that has happened. If a fasting in the Old Covenant was, I want to have communion with the Lord, then a fasting today can, I, I can have it, but I want to have it more deeply. And I want to ask you, what would you say, is there anything that would keep you from Jesus? If, if fasting, and Jesus is saying, the bridegroom is here, and, and yet there will be a day when I am taken away, is there anything in our lives that, that separates us from the intimacy of the Lord Jesus? I want to invite you to think of that thing as being something from which you fast. Whatever that is. If the Spirit of God has come into His people, I'm assuming that you are a Christian in a minute. If you're not a Christian, we'll talk about how how you can receive the Holy Spirit. But as believers who have the Spirit of God dwelling within us, is there anything that causes a disruption in your intimacy with the Lord Jesus? If it is, that would be something from which you need to fast. For example, somebody sitting in this room told me a couple of years ago, you know what's keeping me away from Jesus is sports radio. I'm going to stop listening to sports radio and I'm going to start praying on my way to work. There are things which capture the attention of our mind and pull us away from Christ. It doesn't have to be sports radio. It can be anything. What pulls your devotion away? Whatever it is, consider fasting it, letting go of it, removing it from your life for a season. If it's TV at night, when you could sit and have a conversation with your Lord Jesus, then fast it for a season, whatever it might be. I believe Jesus is saying that fasting ought to be a part of the lives of his disciples, even today, because we, we can enjoy communion with him, but oh, how much more we could enjoy. Yes, we can see him with the eyes of faith, but it's like a cloudy glass. I want to see him as we sang, face to face. Yes? You want to see Jesus face to face? Then let nothing stand in your way. And if there is something, I would say, please consider fasting it. And I want to ask you, so the hypocrites fasted on Mondays and Thursdays, right? And the New Testament, the Didache said fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. So I want to invite you to, if you will, fast with me on Tuesday, this coming week, for the purpose, two purposes. One, there's something in your own life that's keeping you from intimacy with Jesus. I want to invite you to let it go of it. And secondly, would you fast for what is happening in this world? For Jesus to come in a way that would demonstrate his power. He can come back in person if he wants to. I'd be content. The Lord Jesus can come, but he can also come in ways that bring peace and change hearts and transform lives in a very real way. And this world is broken. Is it not a season to fast? And I want to invite you, would you just consider fasting one meal with me on, on Tuesday? 
And we're gonna, we gather every Tuesday evening to pray. That's another reason why I chose Tuesdays, because we pray every Tuesday evening. And, and as we yearn to draw closer to the Lord personally, then let go of the things that would keep you from Him. And, and then it's right, I think, to cry out for the Lord Jesus to come and let His peace reign in this world. And we will pray for that on Tuesday night. And if you are a person who would say, I don't have the Spirit of Christ within me. I don't know what it means to commune with Him. I don't know what you're talking about. There's a very simple thing you can do in order for that to change, which is pray for the Lord to fill you with His Spirit. Because if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that the Lord Jesus is risen from the dead, that God raised him from the dead on the third day, you will be saved. You will be brought into his kingdom. So if you can profess your faith to the Lord Jesus and ask for him to pour his spirit into your life, he will do it. And there will be members of the prayer team who will stand at the corners of the room here, prayer over there, prayer over here, who would be willing to pray with you and would be willing to take you on a, a, a prayer that just cries out to the Lord for him to fill you with his Holy Spirit. So I'm going to pray for us right now. And I want to invite you just to stay seated and, and even the worship team just for a moment. Ask the Lord to reveal to you if there's anything that is keeping you from him. And if it is, he reveals something to you, then would he give you the strength to fast from it? Lord Jesus, this is, this is our prayer. We want to be with you. We want to be close to you. We need you. We are nothing without you. You are life. You are joy. You are peace. In you are everlasting words and truth. You are truth. You are the way to God the Father. Without you, we are hopeless. So would you bring to our minds right now, there's anything that is keeping us from knowing you more deeply. Please reveal it to us. And Lord, if so, would you give us the heart to make war on the sin that remains within us that strives to, to separate us. And Lord, I pray that your blessings would be upon your people. I'm reminded of the words that say, if you seek me with all of your heart, you will find me. Lord, let every heart in this room seek you. Let every heart in this room love you with all of their heart, all of their strength, and all of their mind, and all of our, our being. Let us love you above all. In Christ Jesus' name I pray, amen.